in Isaiah 30, um, we've got a dilemma, and it has to do with what do you do when you align yourself with someone who you shouldn't be linked to? Have you ever linked yourself with a people group or an organization uh, or someone who you probably had no business being linked up with? I've seen it on so many levels, uh, whether it's a marriage uh, between a husband and a wife that's unequally yoked. The Bible says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We'll talk about that later. But um, those marriages are brutal, man. People that think, ah, you know, my husband, he's not, gonna, he's not a Christian, so, but I still love him, so I'm going to marry him, and I'm sure he'll come around. You get this sort of missionary dating sort of thing where someday they'll accept Christ, and then when they never do, what a disaster. It's so brutal, and I, my heart breaks for people that have been linked in marriage. That's why the Bible gives that somber warning. Or maybe some of you that have been linked up in business. You went into a, on a v- business venture with someone who was less than um, honest or uh, somebody you probably shouldn't have linked up with. And you know, it's amazing how hindsight's twenty twenty. but when you're in the middle of it, sometimes you're like, man, how did I get myself into this pickle? Um, or on and on the links go, you know, the groups and organizations and all that. I remember um, learning this tough lesson in fourth grade when I joined a gang. Yep, your pastor was a gang member. And uh, we, we were uh, in fourth grade, we wanted to be a brutal gang. So uh, I remember joining with a bunch of the, the bad kids and we decided to be uh, the murder gang. That's what we called it. Because that was the meanest name or word we could think of, murder gang. And uh, we were marching around the playground acting all tough. We didn't do anything other than just called ourselves a murder gang. Well, Mr. Swift, our principal, figured out that he had a gang problem in his elementary school, Roosh Elementary School, there in the thriving metropolis of Roosh, Oregon. And we, uh, we got busted. I remember Mr. Swift called us out of all of our classrooms there and made all of the murder gang run laps around the backstop and around the playground just for hours. We ran, ran, ran. It was a hot day that summer or, you know, spring afternoon at school. And, um, and th- that was no big deal. I mean, I, running was okay, but it's when he sent the note home with, with us and it had to be signed by our parents. Uh, and it basically said, your son is part of a gang called the Murder Gang, just wanted you to know, uh, signed Mr. Swift, the principal. And, um, you know, my dad was uh, no joke when it came to uh, justice and wrath. Um, and I remember that was one of the top five spakings, I remember, uh, being joined to the murder gang. I remember getting that one uh, and deserving every bit of that. But, but at the same time, uh, my dad sat me down and said, Brett, you can't join yourself and be a part of something that is just wrong. And I had to learn that lesson that, you know, be careful who you join yourself with because that's going to get you into trouble. Well, that's the lesson of Isaiah chapter 30. The Jews here, they're, they're um, joining themselves with the Egyptians and with Pharaoh, the leader of the Egyptians. Why are they joining with them? Well, that, that's the story we've been kind of following here. And if you were with us when we were studying there in the Kings and other places, we read about you know the Assyrian invasion from the north. The Assyrians were coming down and they were pretty much trouncing every people, group, nation, kindred, tongue. The, the, the Assyrians were brutal. And they were headed toward the land of Judah. Uh, and the Jews were freaking out. What are we going to do? The Assyrians are coming. And then there was this guy named Rabshakeh. He was the trash talker from, from that Assyrian group, led by the leader was Sanharib. Um, we call him Sennacherib. Um, but but Sanharib is his Arab sort of sounding name. And, um, and he was coming down and, and 
man, the, the fear had, you know, gripped the people. And it would because it's something, it, it, we've talked about this before, the Assyrians were a scary bunch, man. They were known for just being horrifyingly brutal to their enemies. Um, so bad was it that the people would surrender before the Assyrians even came because, you know, they would do stuff like they would take the leaders and skin them alive in front of everyone. And then they would take their skins and upholster their furniture back at home with the skins of their victims. They would decapitate the heads and pile up heads outside their own cities of all their victims. So that when you'd go to a town in Assyria, you know, like Nineveh, for example, you could see piles and piles of thousands of skulls. And you'd say, man, don't mess with Assyrians. Your head might be on the top of that pile someday. Um, and so um, history tells us, not the Bible, but in um, some of the archeological digs, they found these you know, prism stones with etchings of words of, of the exploits of the Assyrians. And some of those things include entire cities just laying all their weapons down at the front of their gate and saying, we surrender. Uh, and the Assyrians would come and kill them anyway. Um, then there were other groups that decided we're gonna kill ourselves before, because the Assyrians are gonna torture us so before the Assyrians even got to the city, they all, the whole, there's been whole cities that killed themselves. Um, that's, that's how fearful um, people were when they heard the Assyrians were a-coming. Well, this is the situation. The Assyrians are getting ready to besiege Jerusalem, and the Jews are freaking out. They're so worried. And so what are they going to do? They're going to they're gonna seek not God's wisdom, not the counsel of God, but they're gonna seek the counsel of men. What should we do? We need, we need somebody to back us up. So they're gonna to turn to the Egyptians and make an alliance with them and with Pharaoh. And we'll see how that goes. Let's read here in Isaiah chapter 30, verse one is where we pick up this narrative. It says here in Isaiah 30, verse one, Woe unto the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that walk to go down into Egypt, and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh, and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame and the trust in the shadow of Egypt be your confusion. Man, shame, confusion, that's gonna be the result. Verse 15, let's go forward a little bit in this chapter. In verse 15, the Lord says, for thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall you be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength and you would not. But you said, no, for we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee. And we will ride upon the swift. Therefore, they that pursue you will be swift. 1,000, that is people, shall flee at the rebuke of one. At the rebuke of five shall you flee till you be left as a beacon upon the top of a mountain as an ensign on a hill. You're gonna be a model, an example of losers. Verse, verse 18, and therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious to you. And therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy upon you for the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed or happy are all they that wait for him. 
Verse 21, and thine ears shall hear a word behind thee saying, this is the way, walk ye in it, when you should turn to the right hand and when you should turn to the left. Here, the, the scriptures declare that, you know, Isaiah the prophet's saying to the children of Israel, man, woe unto you, rebellious. See, that's the problem. God sees this alliance with Egypt as a rebellion against him. When, when instead of turning, seeking counsel of God, they sought the counsel of men and they went with what was logical, practical. Man, let's ally ourselves with the Egyptians. They got horses and they got chariots and man, at least we can stand a chance, a fighting chance against the horrible, scary Egyptian army, uh, pardon me, Assyrian army. And so the Lord says, yeah, you think you're, you've got it all dialed in. What you should have done is in quiet confidence rested and trusted in me. You should have sought counsel from me and not of Egyptians in the world. And I wanted to pour out my grace and my mercy, but I'm gonna wait, I'll wait for you guys, he says here in our text. Uh, you can do your little thing if you want, but you think you're gonna be swift with those Egyptian horses and chariots? Uh, you're gonna be running for your lives. You think you're gonna be fast on those horses? They're gonna be faster than you are. That's what the Lord says. This is not gonna work out for you. And he says, I wanna pour out my mercy and grace. I wanna fight for you. And I also wanna give you direction. If you would, if you just be still and listen, he says, I'll be that little small voice whispering in your ear saying when to turn right and when to turn left. I'll tell you what to do. The Lord says, I'll do that. But you said, no, we're not gonna to listen to God. We're gonna do our own thing. It reminds me of the psalmist who said, oh, some men trust in horses, others in chariots, but as for me, I trust in the Lord. The Jews had lost sight of that. They were putting their trust in Egypt. Now, Egypt is a type or a picture of the world. All throughout the scriptures, whenever we hear about Egypt, it's not a good thing. Uh, the Egyptians were known to be godless, and, and so Egypt is, is really the type of the world and the bondage that comes from being in the world. The Jews were enslaved to the Egyptians. Talk about slavery, 450 long years of slavery being whipped under the taskmaster's whips of Egyptians. Isn't it funny how sometimes we go back to the very things that enslaved us? That's what the Jews are doing. They're going back to Egypt saying, we need your help. And so the Egyptians said, okay, we'll align with you. And they made a, a pact with Pharaoh. But the Lord said, it'll be your shame and it'll be your confusion. When you make an alliance with someone you have no business making an alliance, there will be confusion. There will be strife. There will be contention. And you gotta know that that's not of the Lord. They're aligning with the world and Satan. See, Pharaoh is a type or a picture of Satan. Egypt is a type of the world. Pharaoh is a type of Satan. Um, when you have strife, contention, it's of Satan. When you have peace and joy and love, you, you've got the Lord. Let me read to you. You can, you can run anything through the sieve of James chapter three to see, if, is this of God or is this of Satan? And check this out. It's James chapter three, verse, um, verse 13. It says, who is a wise man and dude with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation or profession his works with meekness and wisdom. But listen, if you have bitter envying or strife in your heart, glory not. In other words, don't be proud of that. Um, don't lie against the truth. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. 
Sensual being, it's enticing to be angry and bitter and full of strife. There's, a, there's, a, there's an enticement to that. Sensual, devilish. For where envy and strife is, there's confusion and every evil work. Man, James just calls it out. If you have strife, contention, it's sensual and devilish and every evil work. But then he goes on. But the wisdom that is from above or in heaven is pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruit, without partiality, without hypocrisy. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Now keep in mind, the language here is kind of important, without hypocrisy, that is saying one thing but doing another, Um, a double standard kind of thing. Um, There's no partiality among people. Um, There's gentle and peace and that's, that's, that's always from the Lord. But when you're dividing and causing strife and getting angry, that's, from, that's earthly, sensual, and devilish. So all this to say, James is saying, man, you're gonna have the strife and confusion because you're aligning with Satan and, and the world, if you would, Egypt and Pharaoh. And the Lord says, you're, you're going down. Now I've got good news. Um, it's kind of like good news, bad news. The good news is the people of Israel heard Isaiah talk here, and this is one of the times they're gonna listen to Isaiah. And they're gonna say, whew, okay. And they'll break off their alliance with Egypt. And then they'll say, okay, Lord, what do you want us to do? And that's when, you know, Hezekiah built that tunnel. That's when the king said, okay, the Lord's gonna fight for us. And the Lord did. The end of the story, if you recall, Rabshakeh and his army from Assyria comes with 185,000 soldiers. They surround the city. The, the Jews seem to be on the very edge of death. But an angel comes from God by nighttime and slays 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army. They wake up the next morning, look over the wall of Jerusalem. There's 185,000 dead men laying in the, the mountains around Jerusalem. What an amazing story. The Lord, talk about power and might and the Lord will fight for you. But the Lord wanted them to be quiet and wait and say, we're gonna trust the Lord in this. He'll take care of our enemies. But they said, no, we don't want that. So the question that we have before us on this Father's Day Sunday morning is how are we doing with this idea of aligning ourselves? Are we aligned with the world or with the Lord? Are we getting counsel from God or from the word of, you know, the word of God or from the world? Are we taking the counsel of men or of God? And this question, I think, isn't it interesting where we're at in the Bible is where we're at in life? You see, the problem with these uh, poor Jews in this particular story is they had reason to worry. The Assyrians were legit. And there's this thing that I call worry, hurry, scurry. They were worried, man, the the threat of the Assyrians. It was a terrifying prospect of famine, fear, and death. Um, And there was an impatience, impatience. Man, I hope you don't try to go and figure out and finagle and manipulate rather than just saying, Lord, I'm gonna trust you. Are you a single person who is worried because you've been single for too long and in your timing you think, I need to get something, what's what's wrong with me? And you're you're panicking? This is where you gotta rest with quiet confidence and say, Lord, you know all things. I'm gonna put my, well, I'm gonna make it happen. I'm I'm gonna go and figure out a way to find someone with a pulse so I can get married. I've seen that happen far too many times. You have to. Don't make the mistake of Isaiah 30 and 
and take the counsel of men. It's men that put pressure on single people, men and women, that put pressure on themselves and on each other. If you're a single person and you haven't been married by 21, what's wrong with you? That's, that's a worldly, godless mindset. Forget that. Say, I'm going to just trust the Lord. I'm going to, with quiet confidence, like our text says here, the Lord says, man, in, in returning and rest shall you be saved. In quiet confidence shall be your strength. But you wouldn't have that, the Lord says. But he wants to be gracious, giving and blessing you and merciful, but you wouldn't have that. So, you know, whether you're in that relationships or maybe a business venture where you're jumping into something and think, I got to make something happen. I got to pay the bills. Or ministry, you want to get into ministry, and so I'm going to go do this and go on the mission field. And people get too ahead of the Lord. One of the art forms of being a good Christian is to not get ahead of the Lord, but also not lag behind the Lord, but to be in lockstep with the Lord. How do you do that? The Lord says, you've taken counsel of of the world, but not of me. He says, if you listen, I will be that still small voice whispering in your ear, telling you whether to turn right or left. But too many people start to worry. Um, By the way, worrying, man, it just doesn't pay. Worrying is just a lose-lose. Do you know that? Anxiety that comes from worrying about everything that's going on. Did you know that they've done a study on the average person's anxiety and what it's focused on? 40% of the things that people worry about actually never will come to pass. 40% doesn't happen. You say, well, what about the other, you know, 60%? Well, 30% of the things that people worry about are things about the past that can't be changed. So now we're at 70%. 40% things that will never happen. That's what people worry about. 30% things that have happened in the past, but you can't do anything about it. 12% of the things that people worry about have to do with criticism of others, mostly untrue. When people are criticizing, mostly it's untrue, but they spend 12% of their worry on that. 10% of the things people worry about have to do with their own health. As it turns out, the more they worry, stress uh, only makes your health worse. So they're only making matters worse. Okay, so you got 40, 30, 12, 10. Now we only got 8% left. As it turns out, about 8% of the things people worry about are real problems that you're really gonna have to face, only 8%. So we spend 92% of our time worrying about stuff that there's nothing we can do about or it's not even gonna happen, 8% of the time, legitimate concern. And the Lord says, I want you to be anxious for nothing, not even the 8%. But in prayer with thanksgiving and supplication, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which passes understanding will rule or guide your heart. That's what the Lord's telling these people. Man, you should have sought me and I would have given you direction whether to turn right or left, but you would say no to me. And you went and got counsel of the world and you went with the world system and Pharaoh and man, you're gonna be confused, you're gonna have strife and you're even gonna die. You know, he says, one person will threaten you guys and a thousand of you will run from him. You're gonna be an example uh, of of what it is to lose. And so by the grace of God, these Israelis at that time said, okay, and they broke their alliance with Egypt. And you know what? The Assyrians were wiped out and they lived to fight another day because the Lord took care of them. It's actually kind of a good story. Now, later on, the same group of people uh, a few hundred years later would kind of be in the same situation only this time they wouldn't turn to the Lord. The Babylonians would come and wipe out Jerusalem and take all those people captive. That's the bad, that's the bad news. Uh, ultimately, it caught up to them. But 
in this lesson here in Isaiah 30, we, we can worry and then we have to worry about what happens next. When you're worried, you tend to get in a hurry to make something happen. We mistake God's quietness for indifference. So we attempt to speed things up. I love the poem that goes, patience is a virtue, possess it if you can, found seldom in a woman, but never in a man. <laughs> I think that's a good poem uh, of just reminding humanity, man, we, we're an impatient bunch. And waiting upon the, lo the Lord goes against our grain. Waiting on the Lord, our flesh wants to make stuff happen. We, we, we find ourselves worrying, so we're in a hurry to do something. Ask Abraham and Sarah. So they worried, they were in a hurry to have a baby, and so they scurried. That's the worry. Scurrying is the part where you start to do stuff. Manipulate, finagle, come up with harebrained ideas. And that's exactly what happened. This, that's what happens. You hurry, worry, scurry. Well, let's, let's join forces. How did they do that? Well, Abraham and Sarah were promised they were gonna have a child and he would be a, a son that would grow into a mighty nation of the Jews. That was Abraham's, the Abrahamic covenant. God made it with Abraham. Well, Abraham and Sarah, they're getting up in years in their 80s and Sarah's like, uh, this isn't gonna happen. Let's, let's give the Lord a hand. Let's jump in and help. And so Sarah says, here's my handmaid, Hagar, an Egyptian. And you guys go in there in the tent and you know, do your thing and, and, and she'll become pregnant and, uh, and that'll be the mighty nation God blesses. And so Abraham's like, okay, cool. And so he goes and sleeps with Hagar. And she gives birth to a son through Abraham named Ishmael. Then, amazing, lo and behold, Abraham and Sarah become pregnant. Who would have thought? And in their 90s, they have this baby named Isaac. So now you got Isaac and Ishmael. Which one's the promised son? Well, it would be Isaac. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that would be the, the father's of the Jewish nation. Ishmael was the father of the Arab nation. See, Father's Day sermon right here. Told you we'd weave it in some way. Um, but what a crazy story that is. You see, Abraham, the father, um, was the father of two separate nations. And because Abraham and Sarah got in a hurry, got in a worry and started to scurry, they blew the whole thing. Did you know that the, the Ishmaelites were the Arabs, Isaac was the Jews, and they're still fighting today? Thousands of years later, one of the greatest conflicts in all the world's history between the Arabs and the Israelis, and look at us now. And this is because Abraham and Sarah tried to get ahead of the Lord and make things happen and manipulate and finagle. They joined forces with the world again. Abraham joined forces with an Egyptian woman. The world, that's the world's plan. And it didn't work out so good. Hurry, worry, scurry, that's the problem. People do stupid things when they don't seek the Lord and they get ahead of the Lord and they align themselves and join forces with the world. Well, the Lord gives this strong admonition. Now, by the way, you might ask the question, why does God make us wait? Because that's what the Lord's saying. You know, if you, if you read the scriptures again, verse 15, for thus saith the Lord, holy God of Israel, in returning and rest shall you be saved. In quietness and confidence. And verse 18, the Lord said, Therefore, will the Lord wait? Um, the Lord's waiting on them because they're not waiting. So he waits for them. You see, there's two things here that I see why the Lord makes you and me sometimes wait in the face of our fears. Um, two things, number one, promise. Number two, perspective. God makes us wait because of God's promises. Listen to this, Isaiah 64, four. 
It says, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither have I seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waits for him. What is it? For the person who waits for God, I has not seen. The New Testament um, quotes this Isaiah passage. It says, I hasn't seen, nor ear has heard, you know, um, the glorious, the beautiful, wonderful, awesome things the Lord is preparing for those who wait upon the Lord. Those who get in a hurry and worry and scurry, well, I has not seen or heard how horrible things can go for that person. But those who wait upon the Lord, you see, there's a promise that if you're willing to wait and trust the Lord, good things will happen. So why does God make us wait on him? Because of promise, but also because of perspective. Look again at verse 18. It says, therefore, will the Lord wait? In all truth, it's the Lord who's waiting on us. He's waiting for us to chill out and trust in him, to look to him for direction and guidance instead of us finagling and manipulating and hurrying and worrying and scurrying. I love G. Campbell Morgan when he was on talking about this idea of uh, waiting on the Lord or waiting for God. Listen to what G. Campbell Morgan said. He said, waiting for God is not laziness. Waiting for God is not going to sleep. Waiting for God is not the abandonment of effort. Waiting for God means first, activity under command. Second, readiness for any new command that may come. Third, the ability to do nothing until the command is given. Waiting on the Lord to say, Lord, I wanna hear your command and your direction. It's not indifference or apathy or just sitting around doing nothing. G. Campbell Morgan nailed it. It's not... Um, Anything but say, okay, Lord, we're, wait, we're gonna wait for you and your command. That's what the Lord tells these people. I will be that still small voice and tell you whether to turn right or left if you wait on me, if you put your trust in me. But if you're gonna take the counsel of the world and go the worldly way and do the worldly system, good luck with that. You're gonna be confused. There's gonna be strife and contention and you're gonna lose. Okay, Brett, so what you're saying is, man, when things that are bad happen, when there's trouble and trials and things that cause us to be afraid, we should be careful not to turn to the world, but wait upon the Lord. Yep, because man, if you wait on the Lord, he'll renew your strength. You'll mount up with wings like eagles. You know, like the promises of those who wait on the Lord, being still, be still and know that I am the Lord. This is what the Lord has called you and me to do. It's important. So you got this idea of waiting on the Lord. Now, how are we doing today with that? Because we have the Assyrian breathing down our neck right now. We have the Assyrian of the COVID virus. We have the Assyrian of social unrest and racism in America and protesting and anger and people burning buildings and Antifa rioting and um, people that are angry and frustrated because they've been marginalized and treated horribly. And our country is divided and people are afraid and they're confused. There's groups protesting and they're protest, and they're, you might even in some ways argue, of course, they have a right to be angry and bitter and upset. But if you're a person of God, a child of God, if you're a person who believes in God and follows the scriptures, the Lord, he, he, he's got a prescription. 
He, he's given us this chapter in Isaiah 30 as an example to go found, down through the generations of what we should do and what we shouldn't do. We should not join forces with Egypt and Pharaoh, the world and Satan. We should not take the counsel of men and do what everybody else is doing and what everybody else thinks is not a good idea. We should rest in quiet confidence and put our trust in the Lord and say, Lord, show us, what would you have us to do? And in that quiet confidence, the Lord says, I'm gonna wait on you until you're willing to do that then. And only then will I give you that word when to turn right and when to turn left. And I'll give you direction. And then guess what? The Assyrian, the problem, whether it's racism or COVID-19, the Assyrian will fall. The angel of the Lord will come and slay 185,000 powerful Assyrian army. It's not gonna be you doing it. It's gonna be the Lord. I'll, I'll take care of it, but you gotta wait on me and you gotta trust in me, the Lord would say. Well, you say, okay, Brett, that's, that's, that's great. Can you be a little more specific? Well, I'm going to. You see, I'm concerned because what I see today with a lot of these problems, and we could talk about COVID-19 or all these things, but I'm concerned that the church of Jesus Christ today, we've not chosen to be separate from Egypt, separate from Pharaoh, but instead I'm concerned we're diving head first. We're aligning ourselves, we're signing a covenant. As I see pastors and Christians kneeling before Black Lives Matter, and saying, we're sorry, and we, we, we you know, and, 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 and I understand. Now, let's talk about this for a second. Um, I, I need to say this because there's always those who assume the worst, but I gotta say, and I don't think my words actually mean anything. It's more about what we really do, honestly, but I'm just gonna say this, of course. Um, you know, um, African-American um, people have been treated horrible. Black lives do matter. That's absolute and true. And if you've been around Athe Greek, for any length of time, I speak out and, and we've acted out. We've, it's not just words, we've actually come to the defense of other people, other races, nations, tongues, kindred, because we feel racism is one of the great evils of our time, of course it is. And we would agree that um, there are dirty cops that need to be totally taken out. And we need to deal with that, if there is that, and I, I'm not in it, I'm not an, uh, in, in that world as much, you know, to know exactly what the systemic racism is. I'm doing everything I can to learn and grow in my understanding of that. And where we see that, it needs to be snuffed out, of course. Absolutely. So we do believe Black Lives Matter, but I do not believe in the institution. I am not standing with the organization of Black Lives Matter. And I'll tell you why, because that, and we've talked about this in the Prophecy Update, that organization is godless. It's, it's, it's not just me, just check out their website. I'm not making this up, um, but you need to understand, I, I'm so heartbroken to see pastors and entire denominations saying, we stand with Black Lives Matter. And you know, now if they're in ignorance saying, of course we stand with Black Lives, I get that, and, and of course, we, we would all agree with that. Um, and we do need to stand with the plight of the, those that have been marginalized. Of course, that's, that's what we should be doing, and we do. But to say, we're gonna stand with Black Lives Matter, you're aligning yourself with Pharaoh. I'm just, I'm just telling you the truth. Um, Brett, what do you mean? Well, 
let's just look at their, their own description of what we believe. Um, first of all, if you go to Black Lives Matter web, webpage, you'll see on the very front, the very first thing pops, defund the police. So the, the, the first thing is they, they wanna defund the police and they wanna replace law enforcement with a law enforcement that will support their agenda. So then you have to ask, well, what's their agenda? Because if there's, if there's no more police as we know them now, which I have to say, um, all the police officers I know personally, and we have a ton of them here at Athey, I love those guys. Those are guys that would take a bullet for a person and save their life. Red, brown, yellow, black, white, it doesn't matter. These are men and women that sacrifice themselves to, um, to support and protect. They're the ones I know. Um, I've never met a racist cop. I'm sure they're out there. Um, I, I think the situation uh, that we watched up there in Minnesota, of course, George Floyd, uh, that's such a heartbreaking and horrifying thing that happened. And that police officer looks like he's gonna get what's coming to him for that behavior, of course. And I hope he does. I hope justice is served there. But Black Lives Matter says defund police altogether. And they wanna replace it. Read their, read their what we believe and what we're all about. They wanna say, we're gonna make a law enforcement agency that basically supports our agenda. And what's their agenda? Well, let me read to some of the things. They say in their what we believe section, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collect, collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. No mention of fathers, who cares about them? Um, because we're not into that. We're not into the nuclear. If you look up the nuclear family in the dictionary, it's the father, mother, and children, and it's a family unit. That's the nuclear family. And they say, they call it the westernized. Um, it's been around from the Garden of Eden. The nuclear family's been around for centuries and millennia. It, it's it's um, a godless notion to say, we don't need dads. We, it takes a village to raise children, not, not a mom and dad and a family unit. That goes against what the Bible teaches. This idea of destroying the family. I'm gonna go out and be bold on this, but I'm gonna say, and, and I know some people say, Brett, you're white, you can't say anything. I don't agree. I think, I think we, we should be able to speak truth. And what I've seen in the African-American community is one of the greatest difficulties, one of the greatest challenges for my brothers and sisters that are African-America is the absence of fathers. There's something, it's bad enough in the white community, but it's even worse in the African-American community where they don't value the idea of a, of a husband and wife being married and staying together. Um, but there's this notion that has become sort of ignored by so many, definitely black livers, not, they're not even ignoring this. They're actually saying, this is who we are. We don't need the dad in the house. And because of that, I would believe and see that's one of the great problems and difficulties in the African-American community. They've just totally blown off um, the family unit. And if you keep reading, it, 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 it just tells us more about what their agenda includes. Listen to this. Right after that, it says, we foster a queer affirming network. We gather, um, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. Um, people that believe in, you know, one man, one woman, 
the family unit, um, uh, says, we reject that, or rather the belief that all in the world are heterosexual, unless he or she or they disclose otherwise. Um, the LGBTQ community um, is a major power in the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's part of their, what we believe, what we're standing for, and we're gonna have law enforcement replaced. We're gonna defund the police and we're gonna replace it with our version of law enforcement that will enforce the, and the, the, it'll get rid of the nuclear family and it will support the LGBTQ community. Now, what's interesting is there are a lot of African-American uh, blacks around America who are, who are saying, yeah, black lives matter, but all this other stuff, we're not really into that. What, what, what is that? And, and people are sort of, yeah, whatever. Meanwhile, you've got all these really wealthy white people financially supporting black lives matter. And I'm gonna just tell you, there's a massive agenda that I think a lot of people don't even understand. Blacks and whites around America are jumping on board with Black Lives Matter, hashtag Black Lives Matter, and they don't even know what they're encouraging people to do and support. I think there's a lot of people well-meaning. I know, I've seen it here, Athe Creekers who are Bible-believing, you know, people who wanna follow God and his plan, but they haven't really checked into what are we encouraging people to do? Sending money to Black Lives Matter, supporting. You're supporting a Marxist re a replacement of what America really is. And you're supporting a godless, worldly Egypt and Pharaoh kind of thing. And you're signing on. You're jumping on board. Pastors, churches, entire denominations have done this. And um, I don't hear a lot of pastors. I, I, I sometimes feel a little lonely here but I'm just gonna tell you, it's just wrong. You're doing exactly what Isaiah 30 warned the Jews of, of not doing. Don't align yourself with Egypt, worldliness. It seemed logical. It seemed like the right thing to do. It seemed to be addressing the problem of the Assyrians, just like Black Lives Matter seems to be dealing with racism, but I'm telling you, it is not. It's only making matters worse. And we see the, the sieve of James chapter three, where there's bitterness, strife, and confusion. That's what I see on the streets. People are angry and upset. And, and, and is, it, is it really gonna solve the problem? I think we're trying to trust in Egypt. But bitterness is not a Lord. You know what I love about Jesus, among thousands of other things, is Jesus, the Bible says he was tempted in all points like as we were. In other words, Jesus has experienced everything you've ever experienced. The African-Americans say, well, what does Jesus know about racism? More than you, absolutely more than you. Um, Jesus dealt with racism, yeah. You see, there was a little empire called the Romans that were in charge during the time of Christ. These people, you know, up from Italy came down and just trounced that region of the world. They were under the iron fist of the Romans and, you know, the Romans hated the Jews. And they enslaved the Jews. People don't realize this. Um, did you know Rome was built by the Jews? Um, you know, when you go to Rome, uh, we were there, you know, a couple summers ago, and we saw the Titus's arch where you see the Romans carrying off the menorah and all the stuff from the temple in Jerusalem. And it's, it's still in their, you know, beautiful buildings. You see the ripping off of the Jews and enslaving of the Jews. They brought the Jews. It was the Jews who built the Roman Colosseum. People don't understand that. Everybody's like, yeah, you know, are you not entertained? The Jews built that, the Roman Colosseum. 
And a lot of, you know, slave, they were enslaved. So not only was it slavery, but they would, they would just brutally kill Jews, hang them on crosses outside the streets. If you looked at a Roman soldier wrong, they could kill you. And it was just brutal racism. And as it turns out, Jesus died on the ha- by the hand of racists. They crucified him on a cross. Now, us Bible-believing people, we know that the Romans crucified Jesus and the Jews crucified Jesus and we crucified Jesus. See, we realize that Jesus went willingly and died on the cross for a greater purpose, to die for the sins of the world. But when it all gets down to the basics, the Romans, they brutally tortured and crucified Jesus. They drove nails in his hands and feet, crown of thorns on his, they robed him with a, a, a robe and said, hail king of the Jews, as they spat upon him and punched him in the face. Jesus experienced racism to the nth degree and ultimately died at the hand of those racists, the Romans. But while he was dying, he, sat, he, he looked at them and he didn't say, Jewish lives matter. And he wasn't bitter and angry. And what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is the James 3 sieve. Is there strife and bitterness and hatred and envy? Or is there peace and love and good fruit and no hypocrisy? Jesus modeled so perfectly in the face of the worst racism of all, and he forgave them. Okay, well, Brett, that's great. But what does Jesus know about the temptation to be a racist? Um, did Jesus have to deal with that? Absolutely. Now, Jesus was not a racist because he never sinned. But did you know the Jews, while they were being treated horribly by the Romans, what's amazing is Jesus being tempted at all points. Did you know the Jews were horrible racists themselves during the time of Christ? They hated the Samaritans. The Jews hated them. They didn't want anything to do with them. If they saw a Samaritan, they would cross the street and walk the other way. Um, you know, remember when Jesus told the parable of the good Samaritan? We, we miss the whole thing there because we think, oh, there's a nice Samaritan somewhere. But you have to understand when Jesus said, once upon a time, there was a good Samaritan, they would have said, no such thing. That does not exist. There's no such thing as a good American. Uh, American, that too. Um, no such thing as a good Samaritan. But Jesus said, nope, there's a good Samaritan. Remember, he's the one that helped the guy that was robbed and beaten and all that. And, and Jesus was totally blowing up the, the racism of the Jews when he told that story. Not only that, Jesus there in John chapter four said, we must need go through Samaria. And the disciples were like, you want us to do what? Yeah, we gotta go through Samaria. So he goes there and finds this woman of Samaria at the well. And everybody's stunned when they see Jesus talking to this woman, a Samaritan woman. And you know what he does? You guys know the story. I'm not gonna go into it, but he loves on her and is kind to her and forgives her for her sins and she's saved. And all the town is saved because they realize this is Jesus the Messiah. Jesus was able to show us in the face of his, his people, the Jews, being racist toward the Samaritans. You know, Jesus is the model. And by the way, you know, the Bible handles racism and talks about racism. And Jesus, the model, he doesn't try to deal with racism corporately or organizationally. He doesn't say, you know, well, let's march against the Romans. That's what the zealots wanted to do. Or he didn't say, let's march against the Samaritans and, or let's do this or try to fix that or the other. Jesus just individually handled each situation and each person. He was kind to the centurion. He was loving toward the Samaritan. 
He, he, he dealt with people individually and, and, and their sins individually. And, and Jesus would ultimately be the answer for all of those issues. You see, I wonder if we're trying to handle something in a worldly way. The church is saying, yeah, Black Lives Matter, so let's jump on board and we gotta support the protests and everybody needs to kneel down before, you know, it's interesting because as I see people kneeling down, it makes me really uneasy because, you know, we shouldn't really be kneeling before anybody except for Jesus. You know, someday every knee is gonna bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, but we shouldn't be bowing down or kneeling before people. But you're just prideful. Nope, uh, I, I just don't, I don't think we should be kneeling in that kind of way to anybody except for Christ, the Lord. And it's so sad to see how people are just kind of being sucked into this, what I'm gonna call Egyptian and Pharaoh's plan of how to deal with something that's freaking everybody out right now. So we're hurried, worried, scurried, we're finagling and, and the church is jumping on board and we're missing it. And we don't even realize we're jumping on board with doctrines of devils, blowing up the family that God invented and saying, yeah, we don't believe in that anymore. If you're jumping on board with Black Lives Matter, you're jumping on board with doctrines. And I could go on and, and you should do your research because it gets worse it, um, when you read the, what we believe and they, they basically want no accountability uh, and they really believe um, things that you might be shocked if you just read their whole statement. The parts of their statements that I can say I agree with is, um, you know, black people shouldn't be treated badly. They shouldn't be marginalized and racism should be squashed out. I agree with that. But when you read their website, you realize there's a whole other agenda and I believe Satan is behind it. I'm just saying that. Read it, check it out for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Now you say, Brett, what, what do we do then? Well, I, I believe we need to do what we've been doing and that is seek the Lord. You know, some of you, I think you need to shut down your uh, social media instead of being hurry, worry, scurry and posting in little squares and doing this and that and oh, we gotta fix this and racism, ah. Stop worry, hurry, scurry, whether you're a black person or a white person. And say, Lord, what would you have us to say? And what would you have us to do? And what would you have us to believe? You know, I have to say, I'm so impressed. There's some very courageous black people out there right now who are trying to say Black Lives Matter is a bad institution. And boy, those people are getting raked over the coals. And... Um, I, I have to say, there's a lot of people who are godly, godly people trying to point this out and, and they're getting really worked over. And it's, we should be praying for people who are bold enough to say something. There's, you know, so many people that are being silent about this whole thing that there, I think there's a lot of people shaking in their shoes because this whole thing is so violent and angry. But I think we should be putting our trust in the Lord. Some people are gonna put their trust in Egypt, horses and chariots, as for us, we're gonna to listen to God and we're gonna hear that still small voice to say, this is the way, walk ye in it. And oftentimes that doesn't look like going with the world, the world's plan and the world's way of doing things. Um, I'd like to end with one more scripture. It's 1 Corinthians, um, pardon me, 2 Corinthians chapter um, six. And it says here in verse 14, listen to this. It says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's what the Jews did. They yoked themselves with the Egyptians. The word yoke there, uh, it, it means um, when two oxen would plow, you'd yoke them with a yoke. 
put them together so they'd pull together. But if you're unequally yoked, by the way, in Bible times, you'd cripple one of the oxen in that team if they were unequally yoked. You were supposed to have kind of people that were going the same direction with the same strength and the same objective. So the Lord says, I don't want you Corinthians to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I'm gonna say it, but a lot of Christians and churches and people and some of you guys on your social media, you've yoked yourselves with godless institutions because of a good cause or a seemingly right issue, but you're actually going about it like the Egyptian Pharaoh way. Don't be, un- listen to this, because he goes on. Don't be unequally yoked with the un- unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? What concord or symphony is a word there, there hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Listen, wherefore come ye out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you and will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. As it turns out, this is a great Father's Day sermon. Because the Lord says, come out from among them, be separate and I will be your father and you will be my children and I will protect you. Oh man, this is great. What good news on Father's Day. But what are, you, what are you called to do? Come out from among them and be ye separate. More and more the church is integrating with the world and we do it for so many different reasons. I've seen the church cave um, of their biblical doctrines because they wanna be relevant in, in today's world. I've seen the church sign on with Black Lives Matter, even though they're totally pro-LGBTQ, which is an abomination to what the Bible actually teaches, what God says. I've seen them sign on, even though the family unit is God's invention and Black Lives Matter is saying, we wanna disassemble that. And people are just jumping on board and the Bible gives us this command, come ye out from among them, be ye separate. And then what will happen? I'll be your father. I'll take care of these things. The Lord will take care of racism. The Lord will take care of injustice and the marginalizing of people. And he might even use us in a beautiful and powerful way to do it. But you need to be still first and know that he is God and do what he's called you. That's the challenge for you and for me. You know, if you're one who's jumped on board with all this stuff, um, I know it's hard to reverse that and for you to kind of change your thinking on it. Um, I'm not asking you to change your thinking about racism. I do think, by the way, racism is being redefined. What it actually means. And I think there's a danger even in that. We could talk about that maybe later. I might talk about that a little more on a prophecy update coming up here in July. But but the redefining, it's a dangerous thing to even wonder what we're against and what, what are we actually talking about? What are the terms? But the confusion that's around us right now, it's not of God. The confusion that we're seeing among church people and among people of different colors, that confusion and strife is coming from Satan. And it's something that's causing all kinds of trouble. And the divisions are getting worse and worse. And you and I need to repent. The church of Jesus Christ needs to repent. I love the church of Jesus Christ because it's full of all kinds of colors of people. I heard one sermon about, you know, uh, 
Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. And I get that. Um, and I would love to see churches like ours even have more of a multi-racial environment. And, you know, I, I love seeing churches that actually have communities where whites and blacks live together in the churches. I love those churches that are very um, multi-racial. That's awesome. Um, but I also want to say this in defense of, I just love that we have entire churches of black people and entire churches of white people. And guess what? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and, you know, we might have different cultural things that we enjoy and different styles of worship that we love and accept. And, and that's all great, um, but we're still brothers. You know, I have two sisters, Jenny and Tammy, and we don't need to march down in Portland and say, we're brothers and sisters, we're brothers. And I, I almost, I, I, man, I'm so sad. I don't get to see my sisters as much as I'd like to. They're both very impressive women. And they have wonderful families. And, um, and I, I just so value them. And it does make me sad that we don't get to hang out as much. But at the same time, I think my sisters and I have kind of this understanding, we love each other. And we're busy about the kingdom. We're busy serving the Lord Jesus. And we don't really need to go and demonstrate our unity uh, among the world. Because as it turns out, we're brothers and sisters. And we don't care what anybody has to say. It's just the way it is. I feel that, uh, really, I, I love that the church of Jesus Christ, I would make this argument, is the most colorful organization in the entire world. We are the most multi-ethnic, multi-racial organization in the world. And I love that about the church of Jesus Christ, because guess what? We've got churches of, of um, different places and locations and cultural issues. I love that the church people that follow Jesus, man, I'm so thankful for my African-American brothers and sisters and how they worship Jesus. But I wonder if we're, we're just buying into the world's narrative and we're way off the rails. Read Ephesians chapter two, because that's a racial issue. You know, we, we love Ephesians 2, 8, that we're saved by grace through faith, not of our works, and we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We love those scriptures, but you know, right after that, it says um, there's neither Jew nor Greek, and it talks about the circumcision and uncircumcision, the racial issues between the Greeks and the Jews. And then the Lord says, but I am taking and making out of two groups one new man. And as it turns out, that one new man is the church of Jesus Christ. Um, I told you I was gonna only tell you one more scripture, but can I sneak in one more? Listen to this. He says that at the time you were without Christ, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from having covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes afar off, marginalized, I would say, are made near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he is our peace who has made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished what is in, that is in his flesh, enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace. That he might reconcile both unto God, one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and he came and preached peace, which is to you that were far off and to them that were near. For through him, we both have access to the spirit under the father. 
So therefore, we are no more strangers or foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the buildings fitly framed together, um, in whom also you are built together as a habitation through God, through the Spirit. As it turns out, God only recognizes three institutions in this world, and Black Lives Matter is not one of them. Boy Scouts is not one of them. Weight Watchers is not one of them. <laughs> As it turns out, God acknowledges the institution of number one, um, government. God acknowledges that the powers that be are of him and we need to obey those powers, good, bad, or ugly. That's the first institution, government. God recognizes, um, number two, the family, the family unit. Black Lives Matter doesn't recognize that. God says, I invented the family and the the parents, the dad, the mom, the children, that's my organization. The third group that he acknowledges is the church of Jesus Christ. Those who've been brought together by the cross. That's what it says here. It's the cross where we all meet. And you know what's so great is um, I feel that, you know, um, we might have cultural differences and different things we like and do and all that, but you know where I just meet people from all over the world. I've spent a lot of time in Africa and man, I barely even, we can barely even speak our languages, and we'll, but we are so united because the cross, sinful humanity comes together at the cross of Jesus Christ. I've seen it with my own eyes in powerful ways. Meanwhile, the church is getting into this social justice and they're trying to solve the problem with Pharaoh and the Egyptians and they're forgetting that's not gonna do anything. It's only stirring up more trouble. We need the cross, the cross, the cross. One new man, the church of Jesus Christ, that's where the answer is. People being saved from their sins, forgiven for whatever they've done, whether it's racism or bigotry or anything like that. There needs to be a regeneration of the heart and it's the cross where we, where we find that truth. Lord, we give our lives to you. We pray your blessing. Lord, these difficult days we live, I pray that rather than being worried and hurried and scurried, help us to rest in quiet confidence, putting our trust in you, pointing people to you, for you are the answer. It's your cross that unites people in races and groups. Lord, we pray that you do a great work in America where there'd be revival in our land. That's what we need, more of you, repentance of sin. So go before us, Lord. Help us to think rightly, act rightly. Bless your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.